Hello and welcome to Stock Stories, episode 43. Welcome to Stock Stories. I am your host, Alex, your stock storyteller for today. And you are tuned in to the Stock Stories podcast. Thank you for listening. If you don't already know, Stock Stories is the podcast dedicated to helping you, the individual investor, to make better investing decisions. That's what we're all about here. It's all about looking at case studies of existing companies learning from them, learning from their successes and their mistakes, and trying to figure out what makes not just great businesses, but great investments. And in addition to that case study approach, we also look at mental models. What are the philosophical underpinnings of everything we're discussing? We can't really have philosophy without practicality, and we can't really have practicality without philosophy. Both of them work together in unison That's how we can complete our knowledge and go deeper. And so thanks for joining me on this journey as I try to become a better investor through this podcast and through studying, and we can learn together. That's the whole point of this. So I'm really excited. We've got another company for you today, and this company is actually not in S&P 500. So In this podcast, we have been going through the S&P 500 pretty dutifully, but uh, a company came to my attention recently that um, I think is worthy of some study, and it happens to be a company that is not based in the United States. So uh, I figured, what the heck, why not? Why can't we study other companies too? Let's go through as many interesting ones as we can. And uh, so without further ado, Let's look at British American Tobacco. All right, so on this show, we typically cover companies in the S&P 500, But there are just so many great companies out there, and actually one of you all reached out to me on Instagram, and we started discussing this company uh, that made me want to take a deeper look at it. And so it kind of ties in well with some of the companies we've discussed in the past. So British American Tobacco is the world's largest Uh, cigarette and tobacco company and uh, at at least publicly listed and they're headquartered in the UK so in London and they sell cigarettes and other nicotine devices all over the world so they're basically pretty much Philip Morris International and Altria's biggest competitor Uh, so that's basically who they are and I think it would 
be uh, I would be remiss in talking about the tobacco industry without really mentioning them, which I guess I am because when I did the Altria and Philip Morris International episodes, I don't think I really talked about these guys, but nevertheless, they're a big competitor in the space. And the econo- the economics of the tobacco industry just really intrigued me. So I figured, let's just go into this other company in the space and see what we can learn and find out. All right, so where did British American Tobacco begin? They actually started as a joint venture in the United States. So it started as partially a U.S. company. So you had a joint venture between an American company called the American Tobacco Company, and then you had the Imperial Tobacco Company in the United Kingdom. And so in 1902, they formed this joint venture and started pooling their resources to sell tobacco in their various areas of the world. And this went on for several years, but pretty quickly, uh, the American side ended up selling their shares in 1911. And so it became just a solely British company by that point. Now, by this time, uh, British American Tobacco, they were already in 12 countries and selling 10 billion units per year. This is in 1911, all right? This is over a century ago. They were already selling 10 billion units in 12 countries. So this is a company that has truly been international from the very beginning, very similar in scope uh, geographically as Colgate Palmolive, which we discussed a few episodes ago. So this is a company that has had an international presence forever and is continuing to push into uh, new countries all the time, even in recent years. So that's kind of where we're starting at. Now, the expansion of this company continued through the 20s and 30s. All right, there's a big growth period and they started making a lot of money. The profits, unfortunately, dipped when the World War broke out a few years later. But then once the war was over, as was the case with many companies that existed at that time, they kind of rebounded in this post-war boom. And so the growth kept going by the 50s and 60s. And by 1960, British American was making 58 million pounds a year, which is a pretty large sum, especially at that time in 1960. I don't know I don't know the calculations but I bet if you adjusted that for inflation in today's dollars that would be a pretty impressive sum of money uh especially for those days. So they started expanding beyond just cigarettes. So they started selling paper, cosmetics and food and this was actually pretty common for tobacco companies to do especially in the 60s and 70s once the health risks of tobacco started to become more well-known. And so this diversification continued, but they didn't really focus too much on that later down the line. Uh, In 1976, British American had become the third largest company in the United Kingdom. So that's how big they were as far as their financial prominence. And then they made a big move in 1994 by acquiring American Tobacco Company. So the company that they had started out with Almost a century prior, they ended up acquiring them, and that included the Lucky Strike and the Paul Mall brands, which are pretty big brands in the United States. 
so it's kind of coming full circle here. You have this UK American connection being basically reunited. And then that American connection was strengthened later on when uh, British American created a, or purchased rather, a 42% stake in uh, the newly combined Reynolds American Company, which Reynolds American originated from two other cigarette companies in the United States, which were Brown and Williamson and R.J. Reynolds. So those who combined to create Reynolds American, then British American from across the pond said, hey, I want to invest in some of that. So they bought a 42% stake in that combined company. And then last year in 2017, British American said, you know what? We want to own this whole thing. So they purchased the remaining 58% of the company and bought Reynolds American and became the world's biggest publicly listed tobacco company, even bigger than Philip Morris. And so that is a brief history of British American tobacco. Basically, a lot of consolidation, a lot of pushing into new markets, a lot of countries. They are actually in over 200 markets today. Like, it's crazy. That's, they basically sell tobacco products in almost every country in the world that has a developed economy. And a big exception to that is China, because China has their own cigarette company, which is massive, but it is run by the government. And so no profit for shareholders there. Um, but here's the overview of British American as we have it today. So let me briefly remind you, if you didn't listen to the Altria or Philip Morris International episodes, one out of five people in the entire world smoke. That's the adult population, okay? So 20% of the adult population in the world smokes? That's crazy. Now, we may not notice that as much here in the United States because the rate of smoking has gone down from 25% to, I think it's under 15% now. Uh, so it's a little more rarer, especially in different social circles and socioeconomic environments. But worldwide, 20% of people still smoke, and that's a massive market. Think about, think about that market. It's not like... It's bigger, it's bigger than the market for even something like automobiles or airplanes or I don't know. There, there's just so many industries that are smaller than that because uh, virtually anybody can pick up a cigarette, light it, and smoke it, right? So that's how big the market is. The shift in the industry is now toward these quote-unquote next-generation products. So it's been well documented, and we explored this in detail, I think it was Altria when we talked about this, that the smoking of tobacco is really bad for you. In fact, it's so bad for you, it can kill you. It can give you lung cancer, it can give you oral cancer, There, there's just a lot of bad things. Secondhand smoke is harmful. It just... Yeah, just really bad. It's 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 so bad. So why would we even think about investing in a company like this? Well, many people have the opinion that is just that, that they would never even consider it. But I would also like to offer to you the fact that the industry is changing, that a lot of science has been done by these companies 
to understand the nature of tobacco and how to less harmfully ingest it. And a lot of these new products, they don't produce smoke. They actually allow people to consume tobacco by simply heating it and creating a vapor. Now, the approvals of regulatory agencies is still very shady at this point, particularly by the FDA. Um, but the recent scientific results have shown that there is somewhere between a 50 to 90% reduction in harm from these types of products versus the baseline of just smoking a typical cigarette. So this is a big deal. Um, this could potentially open up new doors for the tobacco industry in general. So brief recap there. And these next-gen products are expected to grow in British Americans' estimation at about a 14% annual growth rate from 2016 to 2021. So 2016, 2017, and now 2018 have already passed when these projections were first uh, first announced. And we've been seeing actually a lot of growth in these next-gen products. So there's still a very small slice of the pie as far as revenue and profit, but they're growing rapidly. And it's been shown that about 70% of the people who are trying these next-gen products, they use multiple types of products. They smoke cigarettes and they use the vaping or they use cigarettes and they use the heated tobacco solutions. Whereas what I found interesting was 5% of people who use these next generation products, they've never smoked before. So people are trying new things here. And so there's different types of consumers. You have the hardcore smoker who, who wants to switch to something less harmful. You have the person who's never tried it before who wants to. You have the person who casually smokes socially but doesn't really do it that much. There's a whole uh, psychographic and demographic profile of different types of nicotine users that I think is really interesting. And British American has studied this intensely in order to understand how they can pivot and market for the future. So the total tobacco market, excluding China, because, um, you know, they basically are monopolized by the government run company there is $760 billion. And right now, $680 billion of that is being consumed as cigarettes. So the market is still vastly in cigarettes, which uh, is where the tobacco companies still get a really bad rep. However, that is starting to change and is, is moving toward these new next-generation heated tobacco and other types of next-generation products. Another problem for the industry is that a lot of cigarettes, 480 billion units, and that's units, not dollars, not to be confused with the previous statistics. They're sold illegally worldwide. So cigarettes are a hot commodity and they're being sold illegally. Now, on the one hand, this is bad, right, for the tobacco companies. Every cigarette that is sold illegally is one that's not sold legally, which means it's not going through their hands, so they're not making money off of it. So that's a bad thing. However, I do think it's interesting to note that if a product is desired so highly that it is trafficked illegally, what does that say about the demand for that product? 
Well, to me, that says the demand for that product is significant. I mean, you don't see people smuggling Coca-Cola um, in the United States. Like, that just is not a thing. Even though it's a highly desired product, it's it's not to the point where people are willing to traffic it in necessarily. So, to me, that says a lot about the demand and, frankly, the addicting power of nicotine, like straight up, just like alcohol can be addictive and other things can be addictive. Like I would argue, uh, you know, software is becoming addictive. Look at Facebook. So you've got a very high demand in a really big industry. So even though the volume of cigarettes has been going down every year, particularly in the United States, about four and a half percent less cigarettes get sold every year in the United States and about three percent globally. Uh, Even in spite of these volume trends, nicotine users have actually been starting to increase again. So nicotine users have gone down, but they bottomed out in about 2012. And in 2013, 14, 15 and beyond, they started to increase again, and I think this is due to uh, the gradual adoption of smoke less tobacco products. So that's kind of the frame of mind I want you to think about an investment in potential investment in a tobacco company as is not just about cigarettes, it's about nicotine and tobacco. Tobacco companies are simply a corporate mechanism for delivering the tobacco leaf in some form to a person. That is what they do. That is what they have done for over a century. So cigarettes simply has happened to be the most popular form over most of the past century, but that is shifting. But make no mistake, tobacco will be consumed a century from now, most likely in some form. I I personally believe that it will be just because of the history. If you look at the history of tobacco, tobacco leaves were consumed, at least uh, recorded, all the way back um, as early as the 15th and 16th centuries. Mesoamericans in northern and southern, southern America were rolling up tobacco leaves, harvesting them, and smoking them in pipes. (laughs) So this has been around a long time, and I don't think that people are going to stop smoking or consuming tobacco in some form, no matter what type of regulation occurs, simply because of the nature of the product. But anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's get back to the company. So who does British American tobacco compete with? Well, we mentioned Philip Morris, so they've got the U.S. and international arms of the company, which have since split, so you got Altria in the U.S. and Philip Morris International elsewhere. There's Imperial Brands, and then there's Japan Tobacco International. And so those are kind of the big four that don't include uh, China Tobacco. So the market share changes in the past few years have been interesting. So Philip Morris has been down 80 basis points over the past three years. Japan Tobacco has been up 20 basis points. And Imperial Tobacco has been down, um, or Imperial Brands, excuse me, has been down 30 basis points. But British American Tobacco has been up 140 points. 
Now, I think a big part of this is the acquisition of Reynolds American, but also some of the organic market share gains have been positive in recent years, showing that uh, their existing brands have maintained their influence within the tobacco space. So we talked about those volume declines. Well, how does a company make money when its volumes and revenues are declining? Well, one of the things that they do is they raise their prices. So the price mix for British American is on average about 5.5% every year. And so when taxes increase, when volumes goes down, guess what? Tobacco companies raise their prices and that and British American is no exception to that. The volumes, I also thought this was an interesting fact, of cigarette usage and of tobacco usage is highly correlated with gas prices. If you think about it, this makes sense. When gas prices are down, people feel like they have more money. And guess where people buy cigarettes and tobacco products? They buy them at the gas station. So if gas prices go up, all of a sudden you don't want to walk in and buy some cigarettes as much anymore or not buy as many or not as frequently because the context of where you're spending that money is already hurting you more. You're putting in more money at the pump. So I think that was an interesting note that oil prices and therefore gas prices have a strong correlation with consumption of cigarettes specifically. That's another thing to think about. So as far as the two product groups that British American sells, they've got combustibles and non-combustibles, just like the other tobacco companies we've already discussed. So combustibles, that's cigarettes and, you know, cigars, etc., Non-combustibles, those are the vaping products. Those are the heated tobacco products. Remember, Philip Morris International has that IQOS that they're really putting a lot of money behind. Um, And so British American, they operate in over 200 markets. It's spread pretty evenly in the different regions of the world, which I thought was a good thing. They pretty much, uh, they're not specifically tied to, say, the U.K., or to America, they make money in all corners of the world. They've got over 45 factories, over 55,000 employees. So this is a big company that's been going strong for a while. Now, when we turn to the financials, here's what we see. In 2017, they made $20 billion in revenue and $37 billion in profits. In 2013, they made $15 billion in revenue and $4.2 billion in profit. Now, this is a big jump. But really, in 2017, the numbers are distorted a bit because of that acquisition of Reynolds American. So the earnings per share can kind of give us some guidance on this. So in 2013, the earnings per share, and again, this is a company based in the United Kingdom. So this is going to be in pence. It's not going to be in dollars. So 204 pence per share were the earnings in 2013. In 2017, it's reported as 1,830 pence per share. But really, that's kind of like a one-time recorded earnings thing. If we strip out the effects of the acquisition, the organic adjusted earnings per share, when I looked at it, was really around 272 pence per share, which is still a very nice increase above 204 just four years prior. So good revenue growth, good profit growth, uh, 
but that's mainly due to acquisitions. Otherwise, it's pretty much held steady over the past couple of years as the industry has been shifting. So now let's look at the balance sheet. So in the balance sheet, in 2013, British American had just over $2.1 billion in cash. Now they've got over $3.2 billion. Their debt has gone up from $12 billion to $49 billion. Like, wow, that's a big increase in debt. Um, but their assets have gone from $26 billion to $141 billion over that same time frame. So uh, again, that's like when the assets increase a lot like that, a lot of that is recorded as intangible assets, which are things that you can't touch or see. So a lot of that is basically goodwill. So when British American bought Reynolds American, a lot of that money put into the deal was moved into the asset side of the balance sheet as an intangible asset. So basically saying that, hey, like we put money into this company, we're going to record it on our books as being worth this amount. So that's kind of where that's coming from. So, but the thing that sticks out to me here is like, wow, that's a lot of debt. I mean, it quadrupled (laughs) in five years, but they acquired one of their largest competitors. So, you know, you got to look at that too. You get the earnings power of a strong business, you can pay off the debt. And now you have the strong business in addition to your core portfolio. When we turn our attention over to the cash flow statement, here's where things get interesting. So in 2013, the operating cash was $4.4 billion. In 2017, it was $5.3 billion. And that's been steadily increasing over the years. The investing cash was $18.5 billion last year but it was just $0.3 billion in 2013. Now that trend of cash flow has been gradually increasing every year for the past five years. And that to me shows a gradual increase in business investment. British American has not been shy in spending dollars to develop new products over the years, especially in this past year in 2017, where it seems like they've really ramped up their scale with the Reynolds acquisition. Their financing cash, in 2013, they had $3.9 billion go out in financing cash, which was mostly dividends paid out to shareholders. And then in 2017, they had $14.7 billion come into the business in financing cash. Now, they still paid dividends, but a lot of that was borrowing money for the acquisition. So they borrowed $40 billion last year, but they also paid back 20. So you kind of have a net of 20. And then you got some dividends paid out and some other small items, which gets you to that $14.7 billion figure. So basically what this cash flow statement is telling me is that the business has been continually bringing in more money. They're investing a significant amount of money. And uh, that deal is being reflected in the numbers and in the 2017 data points. All right. So what is management calling for? What's what's going on in the future with this company i mean with volumes declining but we've got new products on the rise like what has this translate into future earnings well management says that they think they they can get high single figure constant eps growth in the next several years so what does that mean so high single figure constant eps growth so as a reminder eps stands for earnings per share 
So the amount of profit a business makes divided by the number of shares that exist in the stock market. Um, so that EPS is basically like the profit that you get for any individual piece of stock. Now, high single figure, I mean, who knows what that means? That could mean 7%, it could mean 9%. I take it to mean 7 to 8%, which I think is is a pretty strong number for a company of this size. And constant. So what does that word constant EPS in the constant EPS growth mean? That I believe is referring to the the amount of profit the company is going to make without taking into account the fluctuations based on foreign exchange. So let me explain a little bit how this works, at least as far as my understanding of it. So the company, British American Tobacco, it's based in the United Kingdom, but you can buy shares of it in a couple of different places in the world. You can buy it in the London Stock Exchange under one ticker symbol. You can buy it in the South Africa Stock Exchange under another ticker symbol, and you can buy it in the New York Stock Exchange in America under yet another ticker symbol. So this helps us understand the difference between these these uh, these symbols. So in America, we have dollars. In the UK, you have pounds. So the pound right now is, I think costs about $1.30 American dollars, something like that. So the pound is stronger than the dollar. So when you introduce currency effects in investing, you basically have a situation where um, the earnings per share that is reported in British money could be vastly over or understated in American money just depending on how the, the currency is that day. So that word constant is there to signify that, hey, we're looking at the actual money reported in the home currency. So that's that's what I take it to mean. Um, but this brings up an important point of, if you are ever thinking about investing in foreign companies, say you live in the United States and you want to invest in a company in the UK, you have to take into account that consideration that, $1 in the U.S. is not going to equal $1 in the U.K. at any given day of the week. So it may look like you're making more or less money on your investment based on that exchange rate. So hopefully that was a succinct enough but yet detailed enough explanation of that phrase, high single figure, constant EPS growth. <laughs> so sometimes these reports and these documents, they're kind of a mouthful full of terms so we just have to dissect them piece by piece in order to try to understand what they actually mean. So hopefully that was a good explanation. So where is management's capital allocation going in the future? So what they plan to do, they've been very clear about what they're trying to do with their cash. So 65% of their profits, they want to put into dividends for shareholders. Traditionally, this is what tobacco companies do. They make money and they send it right back to the owners. They're very shareholder-friendly in that regard, and British American tobacco is no exception to that. So 65% of profits, they want to be sent out to dividends, and then they want 15% to be used to pay off debt for the next couple of years. So they're targeting a 3x 
debt to EBITDA ratio, <laughs> which yet another finance term that we can unpack a little bit. So the debt, that's obvious. That's the amount of money they borrowed. EBITDA is E-B-I-T-D-A, which stands for earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. So basically the amount of profit that they made before a bunch of other expenses. And you can, you know, look up those specific terms if, if you don't know what they what those mean. But they're basically the ratio of borrowings to earnings power. So that indicates the safety of the profits. If you have a ratio that's way too high, then all your money is going to be going to paying off debt. And that's no fun for shareholders uh, in the near term or the medium or long term. So basically, they borrowed a bunch of money. They issued a bunch of shares for this acquisition last year. And they're trying to pay off that debt. So they're earmarking a bunch of money to bring that ratio down, which I think is good. So where have we been in the past several years as far as earnings and profits? We went through some of the numbers just now in the cash flow statement, the balance sheets, and the income statement. At the end of the day, what about just two numbers? Let's look at just the earnings per share and the dividends per share. Because at the end of the day, over long periods of time, these numbers are pretty illustrative of the returns that we reap as investors. When we own a share of a company, we make a profit. Some or most of that money might be mailed to us as a dividend. And the rest is retained for other things like paying down debt, reinvesting in the business, etc. So what about British American tobacco? I found some interesting data that showed over the past 17 years, the adjusted earnings per share of this company has grown at 9.8% annually. So that's pretty good. That's about 10% annual growth over the past 17 years. Their dividend has grown a lot too. It's grown by almost 12% annually for the past 17 years. So this is a company that has remarkably remained pretty profitable in spite of declining tobacco volumes, declining cigarette volumes for years on end. So this is something to consider here, right? A company is having more or less stagnant revenues or slightly growing revenues, but still making so much profit because it can increase the price of its products and because it can invent new products that people are seemingly starting to buy now. So the current share price in London terms is $2,701, uh, sorry, not dollars, but pence. So about 2,701 pence. And the adjusted earnings per share from 2017 was about 272 pence after we remove the massive effects of the Reynolds acquisition. So that's about 10 times last year's earnings, and that's in the native currency. But the thing is, um, for American investors, we might want to look at not the stock price in London, but the stock price in the New York Stock Exchange. So not accounting for foreign currency, the earnings this year are probably going to be above that 272 
So you're looking at about less than a 10x PE ratio, which is pretty fair for an industry average. So in the NYSC, the ticker symbol is BTI, and that does not actually entitle you to a share, actual share of British American tobacco. That ticker symbol represents an ADS. An ADS stands for an American Depository Share. So that is basically a proxy, an American version of a proxy for the stock of an international company. So let me explain how this works. Like you can buy shares directly off of an exchange from another country through a global brokerage account, or you can buy the American version, basically a clone of those shares in America. So the way that this works is that British American Tobacco has authorized Citibank to create these American depository shares. And each one of these ADSs is equivalent to two ordinary shares of the company. So Citibank sponsors these ADS products, and then they sell them on the New York Stock Exchange to American investors. So if you looked up ticker symbol BTI right now, uh, British American is trading for about $33 or so, $34 in American money uh, per ADS share. And so every ADS for this particular company represents two ordinary shares in the real company. And that ratio can depend on what company it is and how the sponsorship is set up. So when it comes to like foreign investing for all the American investors out there listening, it's definitely more tricky and complicated and you have to research what you're getting into because there are other considerations than uh, uh, investing in an American company. Uh, So basically you have to keep that in mind. So my point to say with all this is that the price earnings ratio is going to be the same, right? It's the same, more or less the same. It's the same company with the same earnings. It just gets converted from British pound sterling to American dollars and vice versa. Uh, So those are the things you have to look at. Another thing I would consider is that dividends, when you buy foreign stocks, they're taxed differently. So pay very close attention to the company that is paying the dividends to you because the United States will tax that in a certain way and the other country will tax that in a certain way. And this is the point where you want to reach out to your friendly neighborhood tax advisor and get a licensed professional to help you out with tax planning uh, to make sure you're doing the right thing. But what I can tell you is that certain countries are more favorable to American investors than others as far as the taxation of dividends. For example, I believe that the United Kingdom has a treaty with the United States where they'll basically say, hey, we won't tax you any additional money than your regular tax burden in America for buying a UK company. And I think it works in reverse too for UK investors, Um, but I have to check on that. Whereas other countries, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but there are some countries that charge like 25% plus on dividend income. 
So if dividends are an important part of your strategy when you're buying a foreign company, this is something very important to look at. The reason I to bring this up now is because, holy crap, look at the dividend yield of British American tobacco right now. The stock price has been hammered in 2018, and now it's yielding for the ADS shares in America. It's yielding 8% of a yield. That's cash yield. We're not talking about earnings yield here. So it's paying out 8% as far as the forward rates. And the company just switched from a biannual dividend payment schedule to a quarterly payment schedule. Um, So this is a really intriguing opportunity. Quite frankly, this is one of the big reasons why I started really researching this company thoroughly is because I saw that and I was like, is that for real? I need to investigate it's kind of like that saying, if it looks too good to be true, investigate to figure it out, right? <laughs> Don't assume one way or the other that it's a good thing or a bad thing. Usually when dividend yields on companies are really high, that is typically indicative of a dividend that's about to get cut because things are really bad fundamentally in the company at that point in time. But when I looked into British Americans' profits and their income the revenue, the balance sheet. I started going through these numbers and hopefully as you have heard through all the data that I presented to you here, it actually looks like a stable company, stable profit engine. And so right now the dividend is taking up about 65% of the profits, which is right in line with what management wants. So management is doing what management says it wants to do that's a good sign that things can continue with stability in the future. So yeah, I think this is a safe dividend, um, believe it or not. I just think that a lot of U.S. investors in particular would never be looking at something like this because it's a foreign company. It's not Altria. It's not Philip Morris International. It's not Facebook. It's not Apple. It's not Alphabet. It's a tobacco company based in London. So um, this is something that when it came on my radar, I was like, man, I need to look at this. So when we're looking at the return assumptions, what can we predict? So we got that 8% dividend, which I believe is safe. Now the share buybacks, there haven't been any share buybacks in recent years. In fact, the share count went from 2 billion to 2.4 billion last year because of the Reynolds acquisition. So shareholders were diluted about 17% from that transaction, which is unfortunate, but it's okay because they acquired a business um, that should be profitable for them. So I don't expect them to buy back any shares. I think their priority with cash flow is to pay off debt and pay dividends. So I think uh, no return component for us there. As far as the organic earnings growth, I mean, you just heard the numbers. They've increased earnings by a rate of about 10% in the past 17 years. And they think that they can get high single-digit earnings growth in the next several years. So high single-digit, eh, that could be 7 could be 8%. So let's look at the range of possibilities. Personally, I don't think that earnings will decrease over the median or long term for this company. I just don't see it happening. There's too many people that use nicotine products, Uh, They're the largest tobacco company in the world. I think the lowest range is probably 0 to 1%. I mean, 
I just don't see earnings decreasing. Um, yeah. So on the high end, I think there's a big range here. I think the high end could be in line with management expectations. Let's say that British American tobacco does earn 8% more year after year in profits. Well, that could be great. So let's add that together. You get 8 plus 0 is 8, and then 8 plus 8 is 16. So I think the return assumptions for this company at this moment in time, I think it could be 8 to 16% annual rate of return. And I don't see a lot of price-to-earnings ratio compression. I don't see the valuation compression on this company because the dividend yield is so high already and because um, because it's just been clobbered so much and it's a profitable company. Um, let, let's talk about that for one second. I know I'm going on about this company, but there's just so many different facets of it to explore and that it just makes for a really interesting uh, situation to study. So the stock price dropped over 40% at least I think it's more than that in 2018. Well, why did it do that? I think a big reason is that the FDA in America has come out and said that they basically want to ban sales of menthol products. So menthol cigarettes are a certain type of cigarette and uh, the Newport brands, the Camel brands, those are owned by Reynolds American, which is now owned by British American. And so there's a significant chunk of profits that are going to potentially drop off the map if that FDA regulation goes through. Now, think about this. Regulations, they take time to put into effect. It's going to take, by some people's estimates, at least two years for these regulations to come into effect, if at all, this is approved. And so the profits, at least in the short term, of British American would decline materially um, if this were to pass. And so I think that, as well as a combination of the fact that the United Kingdom is leaving the European Union right now, aka the Brexit, um, and there's some been some issues with that and the way that they're going to handle trade and all sorts of other economic factors, I think people are scared that this tobacco company is is having it rough because they're dealing with these issues with new regulations. But to me, when I look at the products, when I look at the market, when I look at how the next generation products um, have, I forget whether it's tripled or quintupled in size uh, as far as their share of of revenue and profits in the past several years. When I see those types of things, I see a company that is simply just transitioning from cigarettes to heated products. But I don't see a decline in future revenue and profits over the long term. I just don't see that. There's just too many brands. There's there's too many people who want the products. I think it's overblown. So that's where I'm coming from with that. So with that being said, I think this is an attractive opportunity. I really do. After studying it uh, and learning more about the industry, of course, having a little bit of background, we've gone through Altria and Philip Morris International as well to try to understand it. Uh, this is probably the more compelling of the three from an investment perspective right now, just because the dividend yield is so high and the expectations are so low relative to the actual data that we're seeing. 
So that's what I got for you today on British American. Hopefully this was a, a nice in-depth um, episode for you within the tobacco industry. We're going to keep going. We're going to get back to the S&P 500. We got a bunch more companies to go through there. And of course, the mental models, mental model for you coming next week. But for now, that's it. Have a good one. The information presented here on Stock Stories is for informational, educational, and entertainment purposes only. You and you alone are responsible for your investment and financial decisions. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, or financial advisor that can analyze your specific situation in the context of your goals and circumstances.